Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon. My name is Joe Neal. I'm a deputy science editor at National Public Radio in Washington, and I'm your moderator today. Uh, this event is a collaboration of the Harvard School of Public Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and NPR. Uh, we're going to spend about an hour today talking about stress. Uh, it's in connection to a poll we just did um, with Harvard, the Harvard School of Public Health and, and Robert Wood Johnson. Uh, we'll first talk about what the poll found to frame the issues, and then we'll talk about ways people are managing their stress in the second half of the program. Uh, we'll take questions from online and from people here in our studio, studio audience. Uh, and we'll also roll in two clips that uh, we have produced from our NPR series, which is called Stressed Out. Um, and you'll hear the voices of how people are uh, managing their stress and also the stresses that they face. Uh, we'll take um, questions or, uh, from also from online. You can email your questions to the forum at hsps, I'm sorry, the forum at hsph.harvard.edu, or you can tweet them to at forum hsph uh, and use the hashtag burden of stress. Uh, viewers are also encouraged to tweet their ideas on how they manage stress uh, using that same hashtag burden of stress. Um, you can participate in a live chat discussion that's going on in association with the webcast today. Uh, it's on the forum site right now. Uh, today's panelists, uh, starting from my immediate right, are Robert Blinden, uh, Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Kristen Schubert, a Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, and she's also a team director there. Uh, Gregory Frischone, Associate Chief of Psychiatry and Director of the Benson Henry Institute for Mind Body Medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. And Joshua Riff, the Medical Director and Director of Health and Wellbeing at the Target Corporation. Uh, we'll start our conversation off today with Bob Blinden, who will go over the highlights of what our poll found. Bob? Hi, uh, Bob Blinden. This poll is somewhat unusual. That is, almost all Americans live with some stress. And really what we wanted to do was find people who had a high level of stress and give voice to their experience. So when you hear poll results, what you usually hear is people talk about their views about issues on, on the agenda. This is people talking about their own lives. Uh, so uh, we really wanted to find out the share of people uh, that have really high levels of stress, uh, who they are, and their impact on lives. Because all of us sort of live with this and say, oh yeah, it's a problem you have to do. People have to learn how to be tough, get, get used to it. But it, it turns out that people have real consequences uh, from this. Uh, so uh, what did we find? And one of the, the, the biggest surprises, uh, we just asked people, did you have some major uh, life experience last year that created stress? And half of Americans said they did, and then in their own words. So we didn't give them a list, your own words, tell us what it is. 
And it turns out that health overwhelmed uh, what I would have thought would have been financial problems and, and other types of, of issues, including uh, uh, someone in your family dying, being hospitalized, et cetera. And then we switched to the last month. And the reason why you do the last month is it's easier for people to remember experiences, what they did. It's, they don't have to reach far that back. And uh, I'm sure all of us on the panel are going to think that we are unique, that we have high levels of stress. Uh, but it turns out <laughs> one in four Americans checked the box in our poll and said we have a high level uh, of stress. And uh, if we can just show very uh, briefly uh, three PowerPoints. I'm convinced that PowerPoints create stress across America. So I think that's very limited. Uh, among your one in four, you have certain groups that really uh, uh, report very high levels of stress living with the situations that they face. Uh, so people who say they're in poor health are just in a continuous state of very high levels of stress. Uh, people who are disabled not only have all the problems with disability, but they just want you to know that they are in a very high level of stress. People with low income in, in the United States. And I think all of us have the picture of uh, the executive successful people living in stress, uh, but it doesn't have the same impact, at least in people's minds, as people who are very low income. Uh, those, and again, no surprise, who work in dangerous situations uh, live with stress. And uh, parents of teens, and I have to be very careful, we can not blame the teens uh, from that. So just very, very uh, briefly, what is important is that these are not trivial things. People say it has a very significant impact on their family, their work, and their health. So if we just look at the next one and then next PowerPoint and then uh, the one after that, uh, briefly, so forget everybody, yes, it has some impact uh, on family life, but what strikes me is that uh, it, so many people tell you it makes it hard for me to get along with my family. Uh, it causes arguments in the family. These are not things that are just insignificant. We have some trivial problem with stress. Uh, it, uh, it really does that. And because they're having this, uh, they're avoiding being with their family members. Uh, for that, if you look at the work life, uh, it's just not, oh, I'm in uh, stress. It makes it harder for people to concentrate. Uh, it makes it hard for them to take on additional responsibilities. Uh, it makes it harder to get the, the work done. So it actually has a real life impact. And, and the last slide is on the, on the health side. And, and, it, and again, we, we sort of think about it separately, but it's actually not. It's having a real impact. So it has an emotional impact on people's lives. Uh, which affects other things, and, and also I'm guilty of this, so I will have checked the box. It affects your ability to sleep. Uh, it affects your ability to think clearly and concentrate. And a significant number of people we interviewed really had physical symptoms as a result of the stress, whether or not it was muscle pain, headaches, uh, uh, stomach problems. So it's not just, oh, I'm living with this, we all live with it. No, it's actually uh, materializing itself. For people in our survey who had chronic illnesses, that is some sort of a major disease, heart disease, cancer, uh, stroke, uh, they, uh, over half of them said, it's harder for me to manage my illness. I, I, I live in a stressful situation, it isn't for that. Uh, so before we turn it over to the panelists, uh, an imp important uh, thing is because if I was just driving, listening to some of Joe's stuff, I would say, well, you know, we all live with this, but it doesn't affect anybody else. Well, in our, our survey, 
half the people with a high level of stress said their family members said, go get help for this stress. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's not just, I keep it in, I'm so proud, I don't tell you. Uh, for that, and a third of uh, people who are seeing health professionals, they said, you need to do something uh, about your life. So the purpose of this, and radio is so terrific because it gives voice to people. Uh, is to really move our way through, not only with the issue, uh, but to answer the question, what do you do uh, to help people through this? And if you're in polling, the answers always start out by individually. Oh, it's something you should do. But if you're in public health, the answers tend to be looking at communities, tend to be looking at workplace, other things which reduce the risk. Uh, so I think we've been thrilled partnering with this, but we're very pleased to give voice to people who want to talk about their life experiences. And we'll show you now, or you'll listen now to a clip from two stories that are from one story that we had on Morning Edition on Monday this week, uh, where people were describing their stressful situations and how they're managing it. Um, it illustrates many of the things Bob just talked about. Can we go ahead and play that? Once we saw these results, we wanted to know more about the stories behind the numbers. We put out a call on NPR's Facebook page and got 6,000 responses. People wrote lengthy, detailed, and often heart-wrenching tales. The stories tracked pretty closely with the poll, stories like that of Karen Mengwasser, a divorced mother of three who lives in St. Louis. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 18 years ago when she was in her late 20s. It's affected every aspect of my life. She has to watch everything she eats. She takes her insulin meter and blood sugar test kit everywhere. She can't take a walk without checking her blood sugar first. But lately, her diabetes is more out of control than it's ever been. At the moment, it's not very well managed, unfortunately. I have a lot of stress going on in my life, and uh, typically it's, it's my blood sugars are the first place I see it. It's a vicious circle. Having diabetes causes stress, and stress makes the diabetes worse. Most people don't understand what it means to live with a chronic illness. They'll look at you and say, well, you, you look healthy. Well, I am healthy. I just live with a chronic illness that needs to be taken care of 24-7. I do not get a vacation from this. And like many people who wrote to us, other things in her life are also causing stress. I'm unhappy with the job I'm, I'm at right now, and I'm getting frustrated with that. Um, I have three kids, and they keep me very active and going in three different directions at all times, so that's stressful. Finances are a big concern for Bobby Burgess, too. But like many of those polled, Burgess says there are a number of stresses in his life. Burgess is 30 years old and a single dad. He lives in Fairbanks, Alaska with his three children, ages 10, 6, and 4. On days that the kids get sick, you know, <laughs> I have little recourse but to take a day off or at least a half day. Burgess works as an environmental specialist for the state. He gets one day of leave for every two weeks of work. I've been taking more leave than I've been earning. And the day-to-day -day responsibilities, doing errands, making dinner, helping the kids with homework, are sometimes just too much. I actually had my first ever anxiety attack as well. Um, I think it was an anxiety attack back in February. Burgess had organized a laser tag birthday party for his 10-year-old. And uh, realized kind of at the last minute that morning that I didn't have a cake. <laughs> and so I, I made one at the last minute, but then uh, right before I left for the party, I just, um, you know, had an elevated heart rate. I just was uh, uncontrollably emotional, you know, and uh, I, I basically, I just sat down and let it pass, kind of got a hold of myself and then uh, made it to the party about 15 minutes late. 
Well, I think that illustrates uh, just a, a slice of what we found in the poll here. And it was remarkable that uh, when uh, Richard Knox and Patty Naiman put out a call on Facebook, to, on NPR's Facebook page, that we got those 6,000 responses. And they were all really, as Dick said, poignant stories. Uh, they went, we went through all of them. Um, and it also illustrates how where people are in their lives, the situa situations they find themselves in, uh, really affect their stress. And what the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been doing for the last couple of years is talking about what's called a culture of health. That it's more than just prevention and treatment in a medical setting, that health, good and bad health, depend on uh, the environment in which you live. So Kristen, uh, Kristen, if you would talk to us a little bit about how where we live, where we work, where we play have uh, an effect on our health and yeah. our stress. I'm, I'm happy to. Hi everyone. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Um, as Joe said, the, the vision of my organization, of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, is to build a culture of health um, for everyone in this country, a culture in which getting healthy and staying healthy is a value that we all have, a culture um, where health is recognized as a core foundational piece to a life well lived and to a prosperous society. So to accomplish this, um, it is critical that we all begin to recognize and understand the role that stress plays in our own lives as well as though those around us our neighbors, our coworkers, even a mom in the grocery store. So we felt it was so important to partner with Harvard and NPR on a poll in stress and health because we know that too much ongoing stress can really impact a person's ability to make healthy choices for themselves and their families. And that depending on where the stressors are coming from can really impact their health and well-being over, over their lifespan. Um, so there were many illuminating points that came out um, of the poll for us, particularly though just um, how many people are dealing with a great deal of stress on a regular basis. Um, to illustrate this, take a moment if you would and think back over the past month or past couple of weeks to a really stressful day for yourself. Maybe it was a day where you woke up, from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed, the whole world felt like it was operating against you. Um, and think about what you did to deal with that, to cope with it. You know, maybe you called a close friend to vent. Maybe you went for a walk or got some exercise. Maybe you just took a few deep breaths at the end of the day and said, tomorrow has got to be better, right? Now imagine that that one day for you was your every day. And for too many people, that's the reality. Um, what this survey shows us is that when a person has many challenges to their daily living circumstances, not having enough money, dealing with a chronic illness, they experience a great deal of stress on, on a regular basis. The kind of stress that they don't have too much control over in many cases. This is the kind of stress that you might have heard this term called toxic stress, the kind of stress that can definitely undermine um, your health and lead to poorer health outcomes in, uh, in the future. Um, so, so for us, this survey substantiates our view that if we hope to build a culture of health in this country where everyone has the means and the opportunities to live a healthy life, 
we, we need to pay attention. We need to make sure that people have the ability to care for themselves and their families, that they have access to opportunities like good jobs and high quality daycare for their kids. Um, without these kinds of supports, you can only imagine um, what a challenge it is to live, live a healthy life. So I'm really excited to get into the conversation. Great. One of the uh, things that we've looked at in the series on NPR, which runs through next week, uh, is the biological basis of stress. Um, there's good stress, as we just heard, and it can turn toxic. And um, Greg, what, um, you are the director of the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine here. Um, what do we know about how stress impacts the body and how it can lead downstream to toxic effects? Well, I think you noticed from the poll that certain things stress us out in a common way. Um, so if we're talking about chronic illness, poor health, disability, problems with relationships, problems at work. So we might ask ourselves, why are these common stressors? And I'm a brain doctor, and I think most people would agree that the brain is the seat of our personhood. So I think it's probably a good place to look in terms of what is the source of these common stressors. So when we think about the brain, the brain evolved um, for certain things, to keep us safe, to ensure that we stay alive, and that we flourish and reproduce. And this means that we have to acquire certain things, we have to attain certain things. When these needs are frustrated, that gets translated to us as stress. Now, good stress uh, includes things like enhancing our concentration, our ability to achieve. It also is good in the sense that if we're threatened in any way, if we're mugged on the street or if we are in a car accident, our physiology will leap into action and keep us alive. However, if that stress is overwhelming or if it's persistent and chronic, that will have a tendency to wear down our battery. Um, and when, when push comes to shove, uh, health really is all about energy in and energy out. And how do you maintain a healthy energy level? And at the cellular level, that is, is dictated by the health of certain organelles in our cells, mitochondria, which, which process oxygen and glu glucose to keep us healthy. So, getting back to the brain. The brain has a very important area, two nuclei, one on the right, one on the left. They're called the amygdala. They're almond-shaped, thus the term amygdala. And these are very ancient structures in the limbic system. They're on duty 24-7, doing what we call fear conditioning. They are awakening you to whatever threat is out there to those things I mentioned, the things you need to stay alive and to flourish. When the amygdala gets a signal that you're being challenged or being frustrated, it will send messages to another part of your brain, the hypothalamus, which synchronizes all the output from, the, from your brain to your end organs and target tissues. 
And there are three of them. We used to think there were only two. There's one part of your hypothalamus that sends messages to your pituitary and your adrenal cortex and produces cortisol. There's another part of your hypothalamus that sends messages to your sympathetic nervous system and produces catecholamine, gets your heart racing, your muscles into action, uses up a lot of energy. But now we know there's another part that engages your inflammatory response. So just good old garden variety psychosocial stress can lead to the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and proteins that use up a lot of energy and make you vulnerable to the things you're vulnerable to. We all have vulnerabilities. I'm vulnerable to coronary artery disease. Both my parents died from coronary artery disease. So if I don't pay attention to these very important physiological realities, then that's something that I will be vulnerable to. Um, and in the second part, we'll be able to talk about ways that we can reduce that vulnerability by engaging the mind and the brain in healthier directions. Good. We'll turn to that in a few minutes, but first we want to hear from Joshua Riff. Um, as a, a, a medical officer at Target, at a big corporation, um, how are businesses, how can businesses reduce stress in the workplace? Um, we, we know that sometimes, in our poll showed that people say they actually have less stress at work if they have a particularly stressful situation at home. Uh, but there are stressful workplaces too. Talk a little bit about what, what you're doing and what other people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to even speak about this, I can't just represent the employer view. I also have to wear my physician hat. And it's really important because up to one third of our waking lives are spent at work. And so what role does an employer have in this? Um, and so I'd like to show you uh, kind of three slides. The first slide I think is really important to really um, describe the difference between good stress and bad stress. Because stress has really gone in a bad rap. When, when we say stress, it, 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 you know, that has a negative connotation. But in truth, in the workplace, stress could be really good. So for example, three or four weeks ago, I got a call and they said, would you want to be on this panel? And I said, well, Harvard, Robert Wood Johnson, NPR, of course. I'm in. And so a week goes by and my admin said, well, have, have you gotten your thoughts together? And I said, I, I still have two and a half weeks. Don't worry about it. And then another week went by and my wife said, are you ready for this? It's live, right? And I said, I have another week. And then I, but so I was down there where I was almost bored about it. And my stress got a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And now five days out, I said, okay, now I'm ready. My awareness was up, my focus was up, and I got my thoughts together. Um, and so that was great stress. Now, if Joe had been calling me five times a day saying, hey, where's your slides? I need your thoughts. Where are they? I'm coming to your house. I'm going to knock on your door. I would have gotten too stressed. I would have hit that, you know, where I become overstressed. And so it's really important as individuals to understand that stress could be good, but more important as managers in a workplace to understand, hey, the right amount of stress works. Um, the wrong amount of stress doesn't. Uh, next slide. And the way I like to think about it um, is, is in the wild animal kingdom. So, so when a cheetah, in this case, chases a gazelle, um, there's basically only two outcomes, right? <laughs> the gazelle is caught and it's eaten, um, or it gets away. And what happens is the minute that cheetah singles out a gazelle, their, their very primitive you know, sympathetic nervous system goes up, their heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up, their focus, their eyesight gets better, and they are running for their life, right? Their adrenaline is just coursing through that gazelle's body. Now, if that gazelle gets away 
and it rejoins the herd, its behavior is really interesting. It immediately reverts back to normal behavior. It starts grazing, it starts eating food, and it resumes a normal gazelle life, one not being chased by a cheetah. Now imagine if we were chased by a cheetah today. Right? We would have the exact same sympathetic response. Heart rate goes up, our vision gets better, we're running for our life from that cheetah. But if we made it away from the cheetah, we would be ruminating, we'd be saying, oy vey, this cheetah chased me, and we'd be, we'd be have PTSD, and I'd be going to see my therapist, and they'd prescribe me Prozac, and we ruminate, 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 and that leads to that stress response. So what we need to do is, as, as a physician, I preach this, and then for our employees is, how do we actually stop this stress? Um, and, and this last slide shows why it's so important. So as an employer, we definitely could track depression and anxiety costs, right? And that's the tip, what we call the tip of the iceberg. But then there's also medical costs like hypertension, obesity, diabetes, even things like acne or psoriasis that are all linked to stress. And those are direct medical costs that, that we absorb. In fact, um, the CDC thinks that 70 to 90% of all doctor's visits have a stress component. And when they looked at employees who are highly stressed versus low stress, the highly stressed actually cost 46% more. Now that's just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath is all the productivity costs. And it's estimated we lose as a country about $200, $300 billion a year on lost productivity. Um, and we talk about this in a couple terms. One is turnover. So like, are you stressed at work and does that make you leave your job? Or a term that we call presenteeism. So how present are you at work? How fast are you getting your work done? Are you making mistakes? Are you having lapses of, of concentration? And only by really understanding this and trying to get a hold on stress in our workforce could we really maximize human performance or productivity for our employees. Um, so, so this is really probably one of the most important topics um, that the employer community really needs to tackle. And it's only in the last couple of years that companies are really starting to talk about this and focus on it. Very good, very interesting. Um, we'll turn now to the second clip that I want to play for you, and it's voices of people that we went down to the Washington Mall where you can find people from all over the country to talk to very easily. And uh, we heard what they're doing to manage their own stress. Um, and if we could play that now. So I'm doing this story for NPR, essentially about what causes people stress, but really more so about how they relieve stress. Right, right. What causes stress, and well, I'm a teacher, uh, so that can be very stressful, of course. You know, uh, I like to play golf, that helps a little bit. On the golf course, the gnats can cause a lot of stress, yeah. and I like to play the guitar. So. Well, I, I like to sing a lot, like I sing a lot, that helps. And. Um, I'll take a selfie, then maybe I'll delete it, but you know. <laughs> to ride a motorcycle, you have to clear your mind of everything else so you don't get yourself killed. That does it for me. A hot bath and a pedicure. <laughs> a sigh of relief, knowing whatever's on the outside of the door isn't in there with you at that moment. Like you have um, bricks taken off your shoulders. A cup of coffee in the morning. And, uh, and if that doesn't work, you know, sometimes for me, I like the silence. I just like a, you know, a nice, peaceful place. That helps an awful lot, too. 
So that uh, animation was by Adam Cole on our staff, and, and you heard from John and Madeline Leb Lubniewski of Atlanta, uh, Mike and Meredith Higginbotham, also of Georgia, and Michael Hillard at the last from Portage, Michigan. Um, I, we want to hear more about how, what people are doing to uh, relieve their stress and what our panelists say can be done. Um, uh, I would encourage people who are watching us uh, online to tweet their ideas on how they're managing their stress uh, to at forum HSPH uh, with the hashtag burden of stress. Uh, but I'll go to our panelists now and, and just go down the line and ask, how do you manage your stress, Bob? Uh, so, uh, I already admitted I was one of the one of four. Uh, so, uh, my managing stress is to go out and walk around lakes and oceans, but this is the secret problem. I have a picture of Bob and Snow up to here around the lake, so this isn't a good solution for me uh, for it. So, I uh, am very interested in what the panel has to say because I actually haven't, in the, except from the seasons when I go around the ocean and the lake, I haven't figured a way out of it. But sleep is my real problem. It's a real lie that I can live with two hours sleep and function. Thanks to my colleagues, they don't always embarrass me, but that's not true, and I haven't found a way out of that. <laughs> the, the snow one, was that was a really bad day. Yeah, huh? right. <laughs> <laughs> right, that was a bad one. I do a lot of deep breathing. I do. I, I, I yeah, riffed off of that when I was doing my opening remarks before bed. I have two small children, so I also, I, I try to run around with them as much as possible and have some fun. and. And I am blessed because I have the ability to take a moment and absorb the joy of being a parent because being a parent is also very stressful. So I try to find the stress relief where I can. Dr. Fischel. You know, well, exercise really is important. So hiking, uh, I like to do that. Um, shoveling snow in the winter. <laughs> And swimming. Shoveling snow? Yes. <laughs> That's relaxing. Well, it's very, it's very interesting because one, one of the ways to really give your, your body and your cells a breather is to break the train of everyday thought. And doing something repetitive as well as uh, um, giving your, your body a workout, ideal for reducing stress. And you may feel that after you've shoveled snow you have this, this kind of glow about you. It feels good to stop. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I just rediscovered cooking. I had been eating a lot of restaurant meals uh, for many years, and I discovered that I'm actually a good cook, and it relaxes me to cook. Yes. And it's been a great stress reducer. Well, Dr. Benson, who is one of the founders of our institute, wrote a book in 1975, Relaxation Response. There is a physiology that you can access if you break the train of everyday thought and do something repetitive. Breathing is, is an example. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can add mindfulness to it, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Joshua? Yep. For me, I think there's two things that I use to manage my stress. One is perspectives. So I trained as an ER physician, which is pretty stressful, and then I left practice um, to join Target. And maybe second or third week of Target, I had a deadline, and it, my boss said, hey, you're not going to hit that deadline. And I started getting that stress response. I started feeling sweaty and kind of a little panicky. And uh, I realized it's the exact same feeling I would get in the ER when something bad was going to happen to a patient who it shouldn't happen to, like a young patient. And I kind of stopped what I was doing at Target, and I said, 
nobody's going to die here, right? Nobody's going to die because of what I'm doing at Target. And just that one minute completely changed my response to work where I put everything into perspective. And so when I start to feel that stress response at Target, I say, well, hey, nobody's going to die here. What's the worst that could happen? And by being able to cognitively kind of change that perspective and think about there are so many things that could be worse than missing a deadline or, or saying something, you know, wrong on NPR that could happen to me. Um, it's that, kind of bad when we miss right? But so, but so, so that, that totally changed my perspective. And a second one is a mentor of mine, a guy named Tim Crimmins, taught me a mantra of 15, 24, 7. And what he taught me is you have to disconnect. 15 minutes a day, 24 hours a week, seven days a year. So 15 minutes a day, I just find total quiet time. I'm not reading a paper, I'm not listening to music. It's just 15 minutes where I'm alone. 24 hours a week, I will disconnect from work email. So for me, it's usually Friday night to um, Saturday night. I will not check my email. If there's an emergency, people could call me on my cell phone. And then seven days a year, I take one real vacation where I completely disconnect from work. And that allows me to kind of keep everything in balance. I would just pick up on that. One thing that I've discovered lately, uh, from this series, uh, we've been talking, we're talking about uh, within a couple of the pieces, the concept of bandwidth stress. And uh, do you have enough room to handle all of it? And how, when you when everything gets compressed, your stress goes up, as we've just heard. Uh, I schedule an hour to an hour and a half in my calendar each uh, three days a week so that I don't have people scheduling meetings for me, that I can go off and get my work accomplished. And I found that has reduced my stress enormously rather than just letting it all flow over me all the time, which is what many people just do, in my business especially. Yeah, yeah and we talk about that in the workplace, uh, workplace of setting boundaries. So if it's important for you to go for a walk or to work out or have family time, actually use your schedule. And so, so a lot of people have two separate calendars. They have their work calendar, their life calendar. We talk about, no, integrate it mm -hmm. so that you can actually set those boundaries and combine both together. Well, on this issue of bandwidth stress, Kristen, I want to ask yeah. you more. You, you talked about your family. Um, what, what can people do to battle it? What other strategies are out there to, to help? Yeah, well, bandwidth is one of those phenomenons, you know, um, you got to look at how much you have. And we're, we're talking up here pretty well-resourced people who have control, for the most part, over their stress and their lives. We're looking at the people who responded to the survey, and we're looking at people who have a lot of challenges going on all of a sudden their bandwidth gets a lot smaller, right? So at, at our institution, we're looking at investing in communities, looking at how we can increase these people's bandwidths. How can we get services and supports to them, and informally, not just formally, to increase their bandwidth? That mom in the bathtub, I mean, how many moms wouldn't you know, love to have a neighbor say, why don't you go take a bath for 20 minutes? I'm gonna watch your kids, they're not gonna be knocking at the door. Just even those 20 minutes increases a parent's bandwidth. They can come out refreshed, a little bit better able to deal with, you know, uh, being a parent and everything else they have going on. That's a, an informal example. I definitely can go into more formal examples of um, communities that are really looking at how do we increase the bandwidth of families and people living here so that they can live healthier lives? Along with bandwidth comes resiliency, and I know you do a lot of work on that. Yes. Just one other comment. You, in the, the data, you saw that stress mm -hmm. 
actually removes one of the main ingredients for human resiliency, which is your connection to family and to community. So that becomes a real vicious cycle. And so doing something to reduce stress will help you get closer to the things that make you most resilient. But um, resiliency is a really important topic. Um, uh, when we started looking at it in the early 2000s, nobody was using the term, but now everyone's using the term resiliency. Um, um, there's, a, uh, there's a book out, Anti-Fragility, and they're trying to sort of say that you can actually grow stronger from stress as opposed to just buffering against the, the, the bad effects of stress. But be that as it may, we're learning so much about human resiliency because, uh, it's sad to say, because of the wartime experiences of our warriors who've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. So researchers, Dennis Charney at Mount Sinai, Steve Southwick at Yale, are putting a lot of time and effort in trying to understand the components that go into a resilient human being. And no surprise, they're coming from that big organ between your ears. And uh, um, one thing you need to do if you're going to be resilient is find a way to dampen the, the amygdala tone, we say, to reduce your, your fear response, your stress response. So meditation, relaxation response, breathing, emptying your mind of everyday thinking, taking 15 minutes a day, as Josh mentioned, can reset your, your osmostat or your thermostat of stress. And so that's really important. Also social support. When I look out at you, I know that you're all mammals. And so your environment of, of adaptedness is attachment. So attaching again to the people you love, the people who care about you, extraordinarily important for re resiliency, a major, major feature of what makes us healthy and resilient. And then moving forward in the brain and upward, it's this idea of building cognitive skills, reducing that internal driver to stress that Josh was talking about um, that we human beings seem to get trapped by. So cognitive skills is important. Reframing um, your experience to, to take into account that you're a good person with qu good qualities, even when bad things happen to you. And then we have this magical ability as, as human beings to think ourselves into the future. A neuroscientist called it, we have a memory of the future. That's, and so this, can, this is great because it leads to the, all the things you achieve in life, but it's also dangerous because you can think about all the bad things that happen to you. So practicing positive psychology, optimism, purpose, meaning, forgiveness, gratefulness, all very important ingredients in terms of becoming more resilient. And there are programs now. Um, Charney and Southwick wrote an article in Science uh, a, a year or so ago focusing on the need in our country to have more programs designed to reduce stress and build resiliency. And uh, so and this programs like company, what can companies do, Josh? Yeah, so great question. So, you know, if, if you were an employer, I think the first question is, is, are you talking about stress? And so I think as a country, we, we tended to avoid mental health issues for a very long time, and I think now it's becoming appropriate and reasonable to talk about. So whether it's a health risk assessment or just you know asking your employees, like how stressed are you and, and where's that stress? Um, because unless you're willing to ask the question, 
um, you're never going to find out. So, so I really encourage employers to talk about it. Um, I think the second thing, and I think this is the most important, kind of wearing my clinical hat, is prevention. And so Target has done a wonderful job at trying to reduce stress in, in the job by making sure that people are a good fit for the job. And they have, when you, they have a very you know, a, a robust onboarding policy and mentorship, and they foster friendships in the workplace. And companies that could do that and really think about their HR is it's not only about hiring and retaining people, but it's about keeping people satisfied, and those HR policies really could help prevent. Um, but then the third one, and this is kind of where you know you say, okay, now the disease is there, how do we treat it, is, is these resiliency programs. And so I think we're seeing a, a growth now in industry, and it's entrepreneurs who are doing this, who are developing apps or programs, whether they're online or in person, to help build self-efficacy and, and, and build resiliency. So like there's a Boston-based company called Equilibrium, or there's a UK-based company called Headspace, they're really just developing programs for individuals to say, I, I recognize that I'm stressed out, how could I improve it? Um, a stat that I saw that was uh, really staggering is, you know, it, it said, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of people in a study will report high stress, but only 6 percent of people are doing anything about it. Hmm. Right? Like, imagine if, like, you know, smokers said, you know, only 6% of smokers ever said, I'm going to try to quit. Or 6% of people who are obese said, at some point, I'm going to go on a diet. So people who have stress in their life that, that becomes that toxic stress, they aren't getting the help. And so I think as employers, it's our responsibility to provide tools or resources. And for every employer, it will be different. But like, what can we give to employees to say, here, here's a program that could help you become more resilient? Um, you know, when, when I think about our lives and your lives, um, your workload is never going to get lower until the day you retire. Technology is just going to get faster. Right, um, the amount of information coming at you is just going to get, you know, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. So the question is, how do you change you, your perspective? How do you build your resiliency skills? Because there's no way your job is getting easier until the day you retire. I know we have a lot of questions, Lisa. Um. Yes, we do, and I think we'll start with online. I know you might have some in the audience, um, but we have a very, very active chat going on, so I'll take some of those. Um, this one is from Emily McKee. I've been blown away by biofeedback. I'm a science person, and seeing the numbers on how thoughts affect my body has made me a believer in the impact of stress. How long until biofeedback and the like is more mainstream? It seems fringe now, but it's more scientific than most things we have out there. Correct. Well, um, you know, biofeedback is an effective way to achieve that physiological state we were talking about. We work on feedback loops, and so if you have a number, it can um, drill down into these, these circuits and lead to a positive outcome. The real excitement nowadays is neurofeedback, where you're actually l looking at brainwave activity when you're involved in a, a function or in an exercise designed to reduce your stress. Once that comes into line um, uh, in terms of cost, that may really catch on. Most of the time, you can. Some people do really well, and they need biofeedback to focus their attention to achieve. Uh, what Kristen was talking about with breathing and so on. But many people don't really need that. They can uh, um, engage in uh, relaxation, breathing, or mindfulness on a regular basis and achieve the same physiological effects. Another question? 
Yep, here's another one from Chuck Letty. I see so many people boasting about how busy and buried with work they are. It becomes like a competition of I'm more stressed than others around me. Do we somehow equate or celebrate stress as one being busy, maybe like what Weber wrote about the Protestant work ethic, or two more important than others? Who wants to take that one? <laughs> so, I mean, I could address it. So. Um, it's definitely true that people, like any company I go visit, I kind of listen to elevator conversations, and the typical question is, how are you doing? Oh, great, really busy, super busy. Like any company I've ever visited, that's the elevator topic. And the, the reality is, is we're all super busy, and again, it comes to that perspective. And so, again, um, to say, well, I'm super busy but loving it, or I'm super busy and I'm really produ uh, productive, it's kind of that perspective change. So being really busy doesn't equate to being really stressed out unless you equate the two. To say I'm really busy and I'm super productive and I'm, I'm optimizing my performance, it's kind of just a different perspective change. So I think um, as, as employers, we want our employees to be really productive, but we don't need them to be stressed out. So I think there's a difference between the two and just kind of culturally we're starting to say, well, if I'm super busy, that must mean I'm super stressed out. Um, but it, the reality is it's not because we've all been super busy with things, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to stress us out. Thank you. And I think I'll do one more, and then we'll ask the audience if they have any questions. Um, this is about the poll. It's on Twitter. Is the poll segmented along race, ethnicity, language of preference, gender, expression? Can we get the data? The data are on the NPR website, also on the hsph.harvard.edu website. Okay. And the forum, does the forum have a link? Yes, we do. Yes, yeah, so the, the poll results are, are pretty easy to find. But Bob, why don't you address the, the question? Uh, so uh, all the qu questions about people's ethnicity, the polls asked in Spanish, uh, are, are available. In many of the circumstances, the differences aren't very large. And it doesn't mean in real life they're not. It's statistically when you have a one group of the population that isn't the largest. So we expected many more differences between men and women, for instance, that uh, Joe has a story he never saw called Men and Women that Clash in Stress. <laughs> but it just turned out <laughs> that it wasn't as clear wasn't in the data uh, for that. So we have all that available, and we'll be re releasing pieces of it. But at times, they're not as much. The thing that's very striking was the role of being low income in America yes, today. Yeah, that's right. And so th that just took us away. It's, it's a story and a life all uh, by that. And what really surprised you is because when I turn on TV at night, it's the stress of the executive uh, that we're hearing about. How do we manage our lives right. and everything else? But not in our poll. The, st the stress of the non-executive. Uh, is really what shows up in the poll. I think that's so important to mention. I'm glad the question brought it out. Poverty is extraordinarily stressful. In fact, researchers are now coming to learn that there's a cognitive reserve that gets damaged by having to deal in our society with uh, uh, low income. Uh, and um, this is something we need to take more attention of with our patient populations. But certainly, it, I think it comes out in the data, and it, and, it's, uh, and, it, and it leads downstream to things like metabolic syndrome and noncommunicable diseases that are skyrocketing 
in the, that socio-demographic uh, pop population in our country. Really important. Yeah, I would, I would just add that um, what came out a little bit in the survey, and I think we can really start a conversation about it, is about what do you have control over? What kind of stress do you control, and what kind do you feel like you, you can't? Um, you know, Josh, I hear the same thing, but it's like, well, what are you doing to, you know, get some work-life balance going in your life, or can I help you with that? Versus other conversations where, how do you say, can I help, how can I help get you out of poverty? Those are wildly different questions and really have an impact on, um, you know, the, the agency a person yeah. feels to, um, you know, to change their circumstances. I'll just share this one other question that came in um, from Rebecca Ruggles. Can you speak to the role of community empowerment in reducing stress? We tend to focus on behavior change at the individual level yeah. for coping with stress. What role is played by being a member of a community that has a sense of control over its quality of life? Yeah. I could just say that that's a, a great question. Uh, research done here at Harvard in the School of Public Health by Tony Hurls in Chicago really nailed it. There's a, there's a concept of collective efficacy, very difficult in terms of the methodology, to, but collective efficacy, if you go into communities where they're low income, but if the neighborhood comes together, community action, community structures, um, faith-based uh, activities, you see that those communities and the individuals in those communities actually do better in terms yeah. of stress yeah. and vulnerability. Yeah, our poll did find that people, the personality factors and especially faith um, right. were, were coping mechanisms yes. for many people. Yeah. And surprisingly, 14% of people said they had no stress at all. What, what explains that? Well, their answer People was, without stress? Uh, their personalities. I wanted to figure out what it was and bottle it. Uh, <laughs> because we couldn't uh, figure that out. But uh, part of it is, and this uh, uh, faith and all, maybe also part of communities. That is, we didn't ask about the community right. side, right. but they're engaged with a lot of other people to support them. Right. But it's clearly possible to have people living with some of these events and they figure out a way to manage it so right. it's not important right. the way it is with some of the other people right. interviewed. And guys like us should be studying those people yeah. because yeah. they're William James, th those yeah. are the healthy minded among us. You could drop a ton of bricks on them and they'll come up uh, feeling uh, invigorated. Yeah. But going so, back uh, to the question, at the community level we certainly do see communities who have a high degree of social cohesion and it goes right to the, the culture of health notion I was, I was talking about earlier where at, at every turn, you know, whether it's in the education system or in the workplace or in your informal networks, people are asking, how are you doing? Um, and are there ways that we can help? Um, I, I'll never forget talking to a teacher in North Carolina who was having a problem with one of her students, you know, a little boy, who all of a sudden was acting out and badly. And um, she said, I finally asked the mom, Is, has something changed in his life? All of a sudden, the mom discloses that, you know, her husband had lost his job. She, with a PhD, had also lost her job, and they had been living on couches for the past six months. Just by asking the simple question of what's going on in your life, then people can bring in resources and supports. I and mean, that's definitely what we're talking about when we talk about a culture of health um, in communities. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Lisa, uh, questions from the audience? 
Hi, I'm, I'm Richard Knox. I'm a health and science journalist <laughs> and a NPR contributor. One of the striking things about the poll we thought was that four out of five people overall said that they hadn't ha been asked by their health care provider about stress. And even among the people who were among the most highly stressed, you know, currently stressed in the, in the past month, high level of stress, most of them said that they never had that conversation. And I'm not quite sure what we should be expecting of doctors and other healthcare providers. I mean, we all know that they're under increasing amount of stress. They say they don't have time. I know from doing these interviews that if you open that door and say, tell me about your stress, you're going to have a long conversation. Uh, and also, I think maybe healthcare providers don't know what to do with that information if they were to elicit it. So what does anybody think about that? I, I mean, I can comment because uh, I remember going through medical school and the cl number of classes I took on stress were um, zero. <laughs> so so the, the problem is, is that we're not trained, um, clinicians aren't trained for what do we do if we ask that question, and then we don't have the tools or resources to say, well, if you're really stressed, here's what you do. Now, the best clinicians do that. Um, because treating hypertension, there's a degree of stress with it. Treating diabetes, there's stress also. And if you actually talk to the person and say, well, what's worrying you? What, what's worried about your diabetes? What's your life goals, et cetera? You actually form that physician-patient relationship that we all want. Um, but the reality is, is our training doesn't provide us with the resource, with the knowledge, and then we just don't have resources like a pill, right? I could find out, I know how to treat your high blood pressure. Right? I, here's, here's a pill. Um, or even weight loss we could do because, hey, here's a weight loss program or smoke cessation program. But aside from saying, here's a referral to a psychiatrist, and, and the person says, but, but I'm not sick. I'm stressed, but I, I'm not, I don't have clinical anxiety. And that's the problem. Well, this is a very good question. And, and just riffing off of what Josh just said, we have a couple of very important challenges ahead. And one of the reasons we have this institute at Mass General to focus on these challenges. We need to get into training in medical school. You know, doctors all learn the same template in terms of doing a history and physical exam. We need to embed in that template an analysis of a person's stress level and their resiliency level. And then we can come up with a nice heuristic equation that will tell the doctor what this person's relative vulnerability to illness is in the future. Then we have to come up with, with treatment plans when stress is high and resiliency is low. And so an, another thing we're doing at our institute, we have a manualized eight-week program designed specifically to reduce stress and build resiliency based on the basic science of the brain that we've learned from these wartime experiences in, in PTSD as a model. Uh, uh, so, so I think it's going to take a long time, but this will flow into the to the education and um, uh, um, everyday activity of physicians. And maybe we have an ally in the, the burgeoning of accountable care organizations. We're incentivizing promotion and prevention, as you've heard, should fit in with the goals of the Affordable Care Act and accountable care organizations. Kristen, I would just throw in briefly, though, at the systems level, at, at the, the doctor, you know, healthcare system level, we're investing in solutions to look at how a doctor can ask that question and be told, here's what's going on in our lives, and write a prescription for the food bank, unemployment benefits, get their heat turned back on. The person goes back out to the lobby and their helpers, their connectors who say, okay, I'm going to... 
I'm going to get you right into these social services that are right there in the community so it alleviates the dock of having to know what those resources are or connect the patient directly. So there's some systems fixes, I think, that we can also help spread. Do we have time for one more question? I know we're running a little late, but we have so many questions online, but I don't want to you know, neglect our audience here. So did you have a question? Um, so this question goes a little bit back to um, looking at a public health perspective and I, at least in discussions on stress, I find like there's a lot of focus on how to manage stress, um, both individually or at a community level. But I was wondering what can be done to like, uh, I guess do structural interventions to change the sources of stress or the common sources of stress. So not really focusing on this, on the end of, you know, here are these stressors, how do we manage it personally, how do we manage it as a community, but how do we change like the nature of work? How do we change the school system? How do we change the structure of um, our society in a way to reduce the sources of stress? It's a big question. <laughs> big question. Kristen, I think yeah, it sort yeah, of falls you, in your... <laughs> it, it, it certainly goes to the heart of what we're asking ourselves at, at, at the foundation. Um, it certainly have some, some interesting experience um, on how do we look at, say, policies even that um, can, can meet people where they're at and give them you know, the things that they need to, to live a healthy life. So whether it's in the workplace or in the educational system, that family I told you about, um, there should be an easy way for a teacher to ask that question and get that family referred and connected to um, a partner system, right, in the community. Um, so I think there, there are some glimmers of hope and solutions that are starting to emerge. I also have to emphasize that a lot of what we're talking about is also informal. That, again, we need to ask ourselves in our neighborhoods, how can we help one another? Um, how can we uh, make sure that you're not trading your, your job off for caring for your sick child, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, innovations, I think, are starting, but we need to do more for sure. Great. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming today and the audience and our panelists for a very stimulating discussion. Uh, there's going to be a lot more on NPR through next Thursday, I believe, on Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Uh, also, we have uh, material on our website. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has material on their website associated with the poll with a lot of resource information. Their website's rwjf.org. And Harvard, too. You can go to the hsph.harvard.edu website for more information. And, of course, each one of these sites has the results of the poll. You can also online continue the conversation uh, at forumhsph.org. Uh, we uh, have had a lot of comments online, and we'll go, be going back over those and looking at those. Um, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks to Harvard School of Public Health for hosting this, uh, and everyone. Good afternoon. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.